Okay, good evening, everybody. A very special thank you to uh, an anonymous sponsor who's sponsoring this evening, Sheer, in honor of a Rafur Shalema Tehinda Bracha Basima Golda. Ritz Hashem are learning this evening, and the learning and the davening of many others should serve as a schus for a Rafur Shalema Bekarov Mamish Besoch Sharchola Yisrael. Special thank you, as always, to Torah Anytime for sharing this class with those of you who could not be here this evening enjoying the sushi and the watermelon seltzer. <clears throat> Usually in school we learn about the heroes of Tanakh, and when we learn about the holy women, Sarah, Rivka, Rachaleya, Devorah, Rus, Usually, Hagar is not one of the, uh, the names that we delve into. She's a passing personality in the life of Avram and Sarah, somewhat of a strange and conflicted relationship she has with Sarah Imenu, and there's a lot to get into what exactly was that dynamic, but not for now. But yet she married Avram Avinu, whatever level halachically that marriage was, it was a union, it was uh, an ishus, it was a connection on a very deep level. The background of Hagar, I'd like to explore a little bit where she came from, who she was, her righteousness, her struggle, and then some of the key points we could hopefully take and apply to our own lives in Ritz Rashi tells us, quoting the Midrashic source, that Hagar was actually the daughter of Paro. That Paro, when he was exposed to Avramavinu and he met uh, the family, so to speak, he was blown away by their sincerity, by their kedusha, by their erlichkeit. And he said, Mutav biti shivcha velo Better my daughter, although she was the princess and she had a future of royalty and wealth and prestige ahead of her, I'd rather her be a shivcha, a maid servant in the house of Avram Avinu, to at least have some level of connection with that sanctity than, uh, than live the life in a different house, in a different palace. And therefore he said, please take my daughter Hagar, raise her, just allow her to sit and watch you. Let her, let her experience the, uh, the godless, the greatness of Avram and Sarah. So Hagar was the daughter of Paro. Her ancestry, she actually came from Ham. And we know Ham being one of the three sons of Noah. And there is a special uh, or grandson. The, all of his children were cursed. So officially she came from not such great yichus. However, Paro wanted her to be part of the family of Avram and Sarah, and therefore he gave Hagar to Avram. I'd like to read with you a few lines from Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Sher. He was the illustrious Rosh Hashiva in Slobodka, where he explains, gives a little bit of an insight into the personality of Hagar. He says, we know that all of the B'nai Bayis, all of the disciples within the house of Avram, were very spiritual, very uplifted people. Eliezer was the Rosh Hashiva. 
Eliezer, we know Chazal tell us he was Dolo Mashka Mitoras Rabbeinu, Mitoras Rabbo. He, was, he would gain and absorb the wisdom from his master, i.e. Avram, and then he would share it with the masses. So literally, Avram had different places of disseminating Torah, sharing the truth of, of Hashem Echad, delving into the, uh, the insights of morality. And Eliezer was one of the great disciples. He was the Rosh Hashiva. However, Rav Isaac Sher makes a calculation. He says, in the life of Avram, we know that he met Hagar when he was 75. And 10 years later, he married her. So clearly, if she was on the level, according to both the assessment of Avram and Sarah, to marry Avram, that means within 10 years, she transformed herself. Although perhaps it wasn't her choice in the beginning, it was more her father's pushing her into this particular circumstance, but clearly she, she soaked it in and she became one of the disciples of Avram and Sarah to the point where, according to Isaac Sher, she was able to shed her, her genetic um, curse of Cham and Bidova connect with the Kedusha of Avram Avinu. It took her 10 years. On the other hand, we have Eliezer, who was an incredible Talmud Chacham. And he first met Avram when Avram was 73. That's when he became his loyal and trustworthy Evid. Up until the point at the end of the Parsha where Eliezer uh, is able to get rid of his own selfish motivations and be totally devoted to Avram Avinu to find a, uh, a spouse for Yitzchak, only at that point, Chazal teaches us, he was able to transcend his yichus. He also came from Cham. And he was now on a different level of Kedusha. That took him 67 years to get there. So what took Eliezer, the Godel, 67 years, took Hagar 10 years. When Hagar is banished for the first time, before she has Yishmael, the Pasuk says, V'tikra Shem Hashem Hadover Eleha, she calls out, as she's standing there alone in the Midbar, she calls out to Hashem, who communicated with her, and she said, Ata kel ro'i, you are the God of vision. Kiyomra, because she was thinking, Hagam halom ra'isi achare ro'i, which is a very cryptic Pasuk to translate, but literally it means, now that I see, even here, you're able to send your malachim, you're able to send your angels. And therefore, she called that place where she experienced some level of divine connection, she called it Be'er Lachai Ro'i, the Be'er, the well of the living God who sees. So what's going on? So Rashi says that Hagar living in the house of Avram and Sarah, there were certain things she was accustomed to. They would have uh, eggs for breakfast every morning. Avram loved uh, brewed coffee. Sarah didn't like coffee that much. Uh, always orange juice. And uh, there were certain things that were normal for living in the house of Avram and Sarah. 
one of the things that happened on a daily basis, there were malachim, there were angels all around. And she was accustomed to that. Rashi says, There when I was living in that place of holiness, of course I saw angels. That, according to many, the, the house of Avram and Sarah was similar or the equivalent to the Beis HaMikdash of the time. That was the makom of the Shechina. That was the place where Hashem was felt in the most tangible way. But she was incredibly surprised that now here I am alone and I'm still able to have a conversation with a Malach. That means the Kedusha or the communication is not limited to the Beis HaMikdash where Avram and Sarah were living, but I could even have that relationship when I'm alone in solitude and isolation. And therefore she was expressing her, her gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for allowing her to maintain that communication even outside the house of Avram and Sarah. The Ramban adds, he says, V'tikra Shem Hashem doesn't just mean that she was speaking to Hashem and she was expressing how happy she was to be able to still have that connection. But rather, says the Ramban, That expression is an expression of prayer. She was praising Hashem either either in her mind or actually verbalizing it. And she was singing to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and she was saying, Thank you, Hashem, that I now know Bechol Mokom. It's not just limited to base of Roman Sarah, but anywhere I go in life, I know that I have this infinite, lasting relationship with you. She was singing praises to Hashem. It's almost like when you leave your house and you have the Wi-Fi connection, and you're going elsewhere, and you assume there's no way I'm going to be able to connect, and then suddenly, Baruch Hashem. Right? There's some kind of miracle that happens and you're able to connect. That was the, the insight of Hagar. I'm able to get good Wi-Fi even outside the house of Avram and Sarah. Rabbi Isaac Sher goes on, giving us more of an insight into this holy woman. He writes that we know four malachim spoke to her, each one with a different message. One Malach just came to say, Shalom Aleichem. Right? How are you? Long time no see. Wishing you well. And then every angel with a different message. Says of Isaac Sher, how many people have the opportunity, how many people have that internal greatness to have Malachim coming to you to wish you well, to give you a bracha, to give you a sense of hope and optimism? That's godless nifla. Obviously, she was an awesome human being. And therefore, it's not surprising that when we get to the end of the parsha, this is after Sarah passes away, the Torah tells us that Avram marries Keturah. Now, actually, right before his marriage to Keturah, we read about Eliezer coming back with Rivka, and it says, Yitzchak, where was Yitzchak? So he was just coming back from a journey. Ba mibo ber lechai roi. Now, mibo is actually, explains the Ramban, grammatically it means this is something that he was doing consistently. 
So Yitzchak was coming back from Ber Lechai Roi, the place that Hagar had that communication with the Malach where she's saying to Hashem, why would Yitzchak go to this place often? Because they had a really nice cafe. It was beautiful. But says the Ramban, besides the, uh, the espresso they served there, he would always go there. That was a place of prayer. That was a place where the energy was so powerful. For what reason? Because that's where Hagar was able to sing Shira to Hashem. That's where Hagar had that communication with the Malachim. So it wasn't just significant in the life of this particular human being, but Yitzchak Uvinu, the Ola Tamid, he would go there consistently to daven to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And he was coming back from there when he met his wife for the first time. At the end of the parsha, we have Avram marrying Keturah, and the Medrash tells us Keturah is Hagar. Same exact person. So when you think about it from just a very human level, your father gave you to us, so to speak, to learn from us, to grow from us, which she did. And then you were banished. You were expelled from this house, not once but twice. And then somehow, towards the end of Avram's life, he finds Hagar again, and he feels it to be appropriate to marry her again. So one basic question is, if her name was Hagar, why is the Torah calling her Keturah? So explains the Medish Rabbah. Keturah, this is in the middle of source number 11. Amr Ebrachia, Afal Gav Amar. Even though it says that when she was expelled from the house, Vetelich Vetesa Bemidbar, that she went and she wandered in the desert. And therefore, you might assume that she met other people and maybe she remarried. She didn't stay loyal to Avram. You might assume that. The Torah therefore tells us, call her not Hagar, but call her Keturah. Katar is a type of knot. Meaning to say, right, when you tie the knot, that means you get married. So Keturah is, she never untied the knot, so to speak. She kept herself closed off from the rest of the world, although it was extremely difficult to do so, although obviously she felt rejected and dejected, being thrown out of the house of Avram Avinu. But nonetheless, she was Keturah. She didn't marry anybody else. She didn't betray Avram Avinu on any level. Now, we mentioned last week, and it's alluded to in the Chazal we just quoted, that when Avram tells her to leave, it says, V'telech v'tesa b'midbar, that she went and she wandered in the desert, in the wilderness of Be'er Sheva. And Rashi over there explains that the language of wander doesn't just mean geographically she couldn't find her way around, she was just roaming, but rather it means philosophically, she went back 
to her father's, to her family's view of life. She went back to what they believed in Egypt. She went back to primitive, old-fashioned idolatry. So that makes the story so much more complex. You have somebody who comes from a very, uh, you know, cursed background. She somehow, within 10 years, transforms herself and sheds all of that negative baggage that she was brought up with, sheds the influence of living in Beis Paro. She's Dovak, she connects to Avram Avinu, and now that she's sent away, goes back to Avodah That means her very faith in everything that she learned, everything that she inculcated in the, in the house of Avram Avinu, it, it, it wasn't there. It was broken. She was lacking basic amun and Hashem. She was believing what, what all of the primitive tribes believed. She went back to the ideology of her father's home. So if that's the case, somebody please ask me a very glaring question. Not all at once. Why would Avram Avinu marry her? It's one thing that, you know, when she was younger and, and she had hope and she had potential and he actually saw that transformation, then it made sense for both him and his wife to come to that decision. Bring her into the family. Let's try to have children through Hagar. But clearly, after Kaddish Baruch Hu said, it's time to send her away. Listen to your wife. She knows more than you do regarding this. And you sent her away, and it seems like she failed that Nisayon miserably. Right? She reverted back to her old self. And Avram says, but you know what? Let's get married again. Why in the world would Avram Avinu marry her? Well, Keturah, she, she didn't betray him. She didn't, she didn't have any other relationship. That's a nice thing. But you're an Oved of Vodazara, you're worshipping idols. Why would Avram have anything to do with you? You got sucked back into that false deception that he's been spending his life trying to disprove. The whole goal of Avram Avinu in one line was to flood the world with the light of morality the light of monotheism. And she's no longer there. Why do I want you as my, as my wife? So I want to read together. This is from the Efei Toar, one of the early commentators on the, on the Medrash Rabbah, Rabbi Shmuel Yafa Ashkenazi. He lived during the same time as many of the giants in Kabbalah, during the same time as the Beis Yosef, as of Shlomo Alkabetz, he was actually one of the Talmidim of Shlomo Alkabetz. So he's bothered by this question. Why would Avram marry her if she fell and she got into Avodazara? I want to read his second answer together and analyze it carefully. Because the second answer is clear. He's not saying that she did tshuva. That would be the go-to assumption. Most people would assume, listen, she did tshuva. Maybe that was a long time ago. And we know when it comes to shaduchim, we have these, these issues that come up all the time. You know, I feel bad. Maybe I should say something. Um, 
I was doing these types of things in high school. Now I'm a very different person, and he's such a sweet guy. How much do I have to share? How much am I allowed to, uh, to just keep quiet? And oftentimes the answer is, if whatever happened in the past has nothing to do with who you are in the present, don't bring it up, right? Don't bring it up. You did tshuva. You're a different person now. Says the Yafei Toar, she didn't do tshuva yet. Vetese vetelich means that even though she turned her neck away from Torah and Hashem, that she went back into that world of deception. Here it is, nonetheless. Regarding any other relationship, she was never porates getter. She never broke that boundary. She stayed pure in that sense, in the sense of the relationship. She never broke the boundary. but she's still living in a world of lies. Why do you want to marry this girl? And, and just, just to realize, it wasn't just Avram making that decision. The Torah seems to be praising her for staying loyal. The Torah is going out of its way to call her Keturah. She's no longer just Hagar, she's Keturah. She's tied together in faith. She's tied together with, with her sincerity, with her, with her erlichkeit, with her purity. She didn't go to any other person. Keturah. The Torah is praising her. It, it almost sounds like, right? You have someone. He's standing before the judge. And the judge is asking. He's interrogating. So you're basically admitting that you were involved with theft, with, you know, all these terrible things. You lied, you cheated, you're admitting that you owe over $1.6 million. Is that true? Yes, it is. Just like George Washington, I'm not going to tell a lie, 100% true. But you should know, just before you actually make the conviction, you should realize that there were like 15 other opportunities I had to really, really swindle people where I could have made a lot more money, and I didn't do it. I held myself back. Most people watching that, are they going to be super impressed by this fellow? Oh, listen, you, you could have done more evil and you didn't, okay? You're not a righteous person because you chose not to kill more people. You still did some pretty bad things and you will be held responsible for that. It almost sounds like though Hashem's looking at Hagar as she's involved, bowing down to a statue, and the Kaddish Baruch Hu is smiling. Yeah, yeah, I know she's doing that silly thing right now. But look at how loyal you are, right? Look at, look at, what a Aishas Chayol, kissing the, the Buddha. Okay, <laughs> kissing the Buddha, it's only a Vodazara. Such a sweet person. The Chafetz Chaim tells us, and this is a, a very important insight into human nature and all challenges we have. Although we like to say life is not all or nothing, oftentimes the way we view ourselves and the way we view our accomplishments or our failures is very much with the paradigm of all or nothing. He says, for example, 
we'll tell ourselves, what's the point of trying harder? I have a particular Nisayan that I keep on failing. Right? Take the classic case of Lashon Hara, that's what he's speaking about here in Shmir Salashin. Every day at the same time with the same crowd, we always speak about other people. And I do feel guilty at the time and I feel more guilty afterwards, but this is my lunch break. I'm not going to sit by myself. I'm with my chevra, I'm with my friends. And we always speak about what's going on in the office. And 94% of the time, that means we're talking negatively about other people. Okay, so maybe I just heard a wonderful class or I read something inspiring. Today, I'm not going to speak Lashon Hara. But then the voice comes in the back of your head saying, what are you doing? Who are you fooling? Shkoyach, right? Today you're not going to be, okay, wonderful. Guess what? For the last three and a half years, you've been the gorim. You've, you've been the one to instigate the conversations. And likely you're inspired now. You've been inspired before. And you know tomorrow or the next day, you'll be back right at it making fun of the way she looks. You know that. So what's the point? What are you doing? I try not to, uh, to watch these particular things. It's something that I struggle with. Okay, so today I'm going to be very careful. I'm not going to do it. Why? What's going to happen tomorrow? Says the, the Chafetz Chaim, that is a classic tool of the Yetzirah. Now even saying the phrase Yetzirah makes it less real to us. But that's how we speak to ourselves. We don't view anything we accomplish with any sense of significance or chashivas if we know that likely, I'll, I'll get right back to it again. Explains the, uh, the Chafetz Chaim, he quotes from the Vilna Gon, um, who's quoting from the Medrash. He says, Yadu'a ma'ashevi hagra b'shem ha'medrash one of the most famous lines in the world of Lashon Hara. But let's read it carefully. Every moment that I'm able to keep my mouth shut, even though I have something so juicy to share, and it's going to get a good laugh, and it's going to make others appreciate me, and it's going to make me feel good about myself. But if I'm able to, to just keep my mouth shut for this one moment, I will be Zoha to that eternal light that not even the greatest angels are able to, to imagine. Says the Chafetz Chaim. The Chazal does not say, for every week I'm able to control myself in whatever my area of challenge is, or for every month I'm able to, to be misgaber, to transcend this thing that's been holding me back until now. Rather, it says, Korega verega, every moment. Why is it focusing on every moment? Explains the Chafetz Chaim. Because the intent of this Chazal is, don't look at life as a package. Don't look at your success in Ruchnius as over these five years. We, we have ups and downs. But rather, Bechol Rega Rega, whatever I was doing yesterday and three years prior, and whatever I may be doing an hour from now, that makes absolutely no difference. If I could somehow have the Gevura, have the courage, have the faith, 
that in this moment, in this chalik of chayim, or this portion of life, I'm going to have the, the ability to push through and not succumb to the challenge? We can't even imagine the level of nitzchiyas of eternity we will be zochet to experience. He says that there was once a young man who was asking one of, the, uh, one of the rabbis of the community, he says, what do I do? Everybody speaks about how important it is to daven with kavana and to have some level of intention, the meaning of the words while I'm saying them. The fact is, is that I space out pretty much the entire tefillah. I can say the words, but it's meaningless to me. What do I do if I catch myself towards the end of Shemona Esrei? I'm right there, last couple of brachos, and the entire time, I really have no clue that I've even been in shul. I somehow wake up for a moment as I smack myself in the chest, oh, here I am, okay, back to unconsciousness, and then I wake up towards the end of davening. What do I do at this point? So the rabbi answered back. He said, let's say you were selling a whole basket of vegetables. And you're standing there in the marketplace and there's people running back and forth and there's noise and commotion. And there's a ganif. There's a guy that sees your vegetables and he's stronger than you are. So he runs over to you. He pushes you over and he starts grabbing the basket from you. You're trying to fight back, but he overpowers you. And as he pulls the basket out of your hands, what ends up happening is that all of those vegetables fly all over the ground. And you stand there and you see this guy frantically running, trying to get all of the produce that he's stealing from you. And you just stand there shock. You don't know what to do. So someone comes over and says, do yourself a favor. As he's grabbing as much as he can, grab as much as you can, because whatever you take, he won't take. So the same thing is true. You have one bracha left of Shemona Esra. Here I am at Sim Shalom. Everything else is just a fog. Sim Shalom. I could grab this. Chol rega verega. Every moment, it's a new opportunity. And it's not just Hashem will throw you a bone. Okay, you know, you're pretty much a loser. But it was nice you did this one thing. Shkoyach. We can't even fathom the or hagonos that's waiting for us. The whole rega rega. The greatest nisayon of Hagar. Whatever it was, and we don't know that much information. So we can't fill in the blanks. We're not going to use our creative license here. But we could imagine that she was feeling rejected. She was feeling that her hopes were dashed, right? looking forward to this, this life and legacy together with Avram and Sarah building Klal Yisrael, and now she has no part of that. She's been rejected. We could imagine the, the disappointment and the hurt and the pain, and therefore she goes back to her old way of life. So when you're going back to your old way of life, you're going back to what you grew up with, and you're having memories of going to uh, the base of Odazara together with your Bubby and Zadie. And okay, here I am, bowing to the Buddha. How easy would it be at that point to throw away everything and to lose any sense of loyalty you had to Avramavinu because I'm no longer in that world. I don't keep Shabbos anymore. I'm not eating kosher. I haven't put on tefillin for eight months. 
Obviously, this is not who I am. This is not where I am anymore. The challenge of Hagar in that moment was, even though you're throwing away everything, even though the foundations of the most basic Amunan Bitachon have been shaken to the core, and you're living in this state of confusion where you know nothing to be true, and therefore you're going back to what you feel more connected with. Sociologically, that was your, uh, that was your childhood, so you're going back there. But your Nisoyon right now is, can you hold on to something? I didn't daven for the last three days. Does that mean I can't daven Mincha right now? Why not? I have time. I have a sitter. I have no other place to be. Why not daven Mincha? Because who are you fooling? You didn't daven Mincha in a long time. And likely you're not going to daven tomorrow. That's 100% true. I will not daven Mincha tomorrow. But I could still daven Mincha right now. That was the Nisayon, that was the challenge of Hagar. And a Kaddish Baruch who saw this and appreciated the Gevura. What level of accountability will she have for going back to idolatry? You have to ask that question to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. But what's clear from Chazal is that the Torah feels, this is, this is worthy of Shevach. She deserves praise. We're going to call her Keturah. Because yes, she's still bowing down to the Buddha, but she's holding on to something. She didn't give it all up. And that's exactly what Avram Avinu said. The Yafei Torah is telling us, helping us get into the, the psychology of Avram Avinu. Why did he take her back knowing full well what she was doing? Because he saw the same thing that God saw. He saw someone who was struggling but still holding on, not giving up on everything. Likely the reason why it's so difficult to hold on to anything when we feel like we're losing everything is because we define ourselves now as very different people. I'm no longer the yeshiva bachar I was before. I'm no longer the Beis Yaakov girl because I'm living a very different lifestyle. I think the, uh, the challenge we all have is to try to find that balance of Hagar where even if we find ourselves bowing down to the idol, it doesn't mean I have to give up everything. The Rebbe says in the Mishnah in Atzmacha, don't ever view yourself as a Russia. But maybe I am a Russia, right? There are people who are actually halachically categorized as Rishoyim. But the Mishnah is saying, but don't view yourself that way. So explains the Rebbe it's one thing to say, I've made these many mistakes, and I don't see myself improving on the majority of them quite yet. But if I define myself as a Russia, I'm, I'm not saying that I've made a mistake, I'm saying I am a mistake, and therefore, what's the point of changing? I despair from ever really changing because I'm no longer that person I was five years ago. And now if I have another opportunity for a different Avera, why not? <laughs> I ate Shreif the last two meals. I'll eat Shreif again. Does it really make a difference? Because we think to ourselves, this is not much in contrast to what I've been doing. 
So atir roshav atzmecha means I can't view myself as an entirely different person. There's no such thing as being a Russia. You might be halachically classified as a Russia. You might be puzzle for edus. You might be invalid to give testimony. Because halachically, you're in the category of a Russia. But you intrinsically are not evil. I've made mistakes. I am no longer Shomer Torah and Mitzvos in a way where I could count as an aid during a Kedushin. That's a bummer. What do I do now? Dawson and the Viram, these are names we know, they were the troublemakers throughout the, uh, the Midbar. <coughs> the Rush, in his commentary to the Chumash, was bothered by the question, if all of the bad people died, all of the Jewish Rishoyim died during the three days of the intensity of Choshech, so how did Dawson and Aviram somehow get out of Mitzrayim? They were also Rishoyim, right? So what did they do? Explains the Rush in source number 17. He says, Yesh Lomar, the answer is, Afal pi Rishoyim, lo nisyashu min ha It's true. They were also classified as Rishoyim, but they had one thing going for them, which was, they never despaired regarding the redemption. They had this ironclad faith that a Kaddish Baruch Hu will take us out of Mitzrayim. Keeping Shabbos still? No. Keeping kosher? No. Taras and Mishpacha? No. But lo nisiyashu min ha-ge'ula, I haven't yet despaired. And explains the rush, it was that one mila, it was that one quality that, that separated them from all of the other many, many people who perished and didn't make it out of Mitzrayim. Their ticket to Geula was, I still believe that the Geula will come. Sometimes the one thing we have is the one thing that can change our lives forever. The only way, though, to have the strength of Hagar, to have that ability not to give up everything, when so much has been lost, is not by maintaining faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but it's in maintaining faith in myself as well. And these are the, the immortal words of Reb Tzaddik HaKohen. He writes, Kishem adam lahamin yisbarach, Just like we are obligated to have a moon on Hashem, Kach tzarech acher kach lahamin ba'atzmo, we also afterwards have to believe in ourselves. What does that mean? Everyone likes to say it. Believe in yourself. But what is the real Torah definition of believing in yourself? Ratzalomar explains with Tzadok, Sheyesh l'Hashem Yisbarach Eisich Imo That Hashem still wants to have a relationship with me. V'she'einenu po'el botel And what I do is not worthless. What I do is not temporary. Every misa, every point of struggle, every conflict is eternal. We have to remind ourselves, we have to enhance that amuna, that I am not just here today and gone tomorrow. I'm a nefesh tahora, I'm a neshama tahora. And here's the key line. Vashem yisborach misaneg u mishtasheya ba 
And Hashem derives pleasure and joy when I'm able to do His Ratzon. I wasn't doing it for the last many years, and I'm not going to do it tomorrow. It doesn't take away from the oneg, the pleasure, the nachas that a Kaddish Baruch Hu has when we're able to say, you know what? I don't need to be consistent. I'm allowed to be inconsistent in my avodas Hashem if being inconsistent means I'm coming closer to Hashem. And Hashem derives immense, limitless pleasure from our inconsistency. The Rebbe Yonah says, sometimes we feel that certain things are not not worthy of Hashem's recognition or not even worthy for me to pay attention to. The Rebbe Bechaya, rather. And he writes in the Chovos Levavos, We should never look at anything we do with a sense of sincerity as small or insignificant. Even a word we say, even a gesture, even a smile to someone. And these are words that my Rosh Hashiva would say often, and these are words that I think are probably Kadai for us to say to ourselves often. Kima'at mimcha, that what seems small to you, rav etz lo, is huge to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. The example he gives is we look up at the stars and we see all of these trillions and trillions of little tiny dots. It reminds me of Lion King. But in reality we know that those little tiny dots are actually massive. Okay, so we have a telescope, and it looks a little bit bigger. Says the Rebbeinu B'chaya, Ki ma'at mimcha ravetz lo, we have no concept of how incredibly transformative any ounce of gevura is to Hashem. That nachas, that oneg that we bring Hashem, even in our inconsistency. I think the, the outcome of this conversation and getting more of a clarity into the, the struggle and also the accomplishments of Hagar is not just how we view ourselves, but it's also how we view others. Often we can look at someone who is doing many, many things inappropriate, wrong, crumb, whatever language you want to use to put somebody down, and we have many different forms of doing so, and therefore it's easy to write them off. It's easy to feel that I am so much better than you are, right? That sense of superiority just comes so naturally. But if the Kaddish Baruch Hu was able to look at Hagar as she was reverting back to idolatry and praising her as Keturah, because in Hashem's vision, he saw the challenge and he saw her success. Then really we have to pause. How could I put anybody down? And maybe I'm not doing it consciously, but, but subconsciously, there, there's so many times where I'm able to make myself feel better than you based on one of hundreds or thousands of different factors. But I have no clue who you really are and I have no clue what your struggle really is. And when it comes to viewing ourselves, I want to end with a letter that was composed by Rav Yitzchak Hutner. And it's interesting, I don't have this part photocopied, but in the beginning of the letter he says, I feel bad 
that I haven't responded in a while. It sounds like he received a few letters before. And, uh, but he explains, he says, just like when you're sitting next to somebody, sometimes silence can be the greatest form of intimacy. We don't have to say anything and we can still connect. He says, I feel that you're sitting right in front of me. And it's, it's a great line. <laughs> That's why I haven't written for years. <laughs> but, but he was saying it as an expression of the way he actually felt. However, your most recent letter, he says, I felt I had to respond. He says, you should know that in the halach of Choshen Mishpat, in how a Beistin is allowed to judge and when they're allowed to judge, one of the requirements is they're only allowed to convene the Beistin and pass a judgment during the day. Once it's nighttime, it is now usher to have any form of Beistin. Explains Rav Hudner, this is not limited towards any form or just the uh, official a court of justice. Even when I'm trying to judge myself, I'm evaluating where am I, where am I holding, I've been having a hard time until now, am I doing better, have I regressed? We are also obligated only to judge ourselves during a time that's kosher, that's appropriate. Habibi, my friend, you should know that your last letter that you shared with me, nichnas belibi roshim, it, it etched this, this feeling, this image in my heart, that you are osuk bizmanim halalu, that you're taking the time now, perhaps you're obsessed with over-evaluating yourself. Just like the judge sitting and, and officially being done the court case, you're doing the same thing for yourself. Please accept my advice. My hachra, my, my ruling that I'm sharing with you, who, right now you are puzzle. Right now, you are invalid to look at yourself and ask questions of, how am I doing? Where am I holding? Eh, back and forth. Stop it. <laughs> Just stop it. There's too much of a focus. Because any judge who's actually trying to make a judgment or an evaluation at a time where it is invalid to do so, it is impossible to come out with the right psaq you are going to get to something totally warped based on the fact you're not in a healthy place. So what's my advice? Stop thinking about yourself. Stop overanalyzing where I am, where I'm holding. And rather, malay es chovosecha. Just do what you got to do. What are my obligations? What are my responsibilities? And try to stand, try to withstand the nisyonos of life with a feeling of inner joy. Knowing that right now, that's the call of the hour. I don't have to overanalyze myself. I just have to keep on trying to figure out what I need to do. What's my next step? And he concludes the letter. If you only knew how much nachas, how much onig you're giving to Hashem just by trying to keep on fighting and even when you're failing to still focus on a few things that I could hold on to 
and I'm not going to throw in the towel and therefore regret or neglect everything. Reb Hutner uh, says, you have no clue how much nachas that brings to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I think this is probably one of uh, the greatest tasks we have in life. Emulating Hagar. Not encouraging us to go back to Avodah Probably not a good idea. But, but to, to realize, to have a sense of depth, it's not black and white. When I'm looking at others, and even more so when I'm looking at myself, I have to have an amuna. I don't have to fool myself into saying that nothing's wrong. There are many things that are wrong that I need to work on, that I need to rectify. But it doesn't mean that everything has to be wrong. If my, my, my amuna right now is suffering, it doesn't mean that I don't have to be a good husband. If right now my tefillah is not what it was before, it doesn't mean I don't have to work on being a better father or a better mother. If my relationship with my spouse is not great, it doesn't mean my tefillah doesn't have to be great. Every moment, every opportunity is really a world unto itself. We should be zocha to emulate the example of Hagar, never to throw in the towel and any little bit, every ounce, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Rav Mimcha, or Ma'at Mimcha, whatever you might think is small, Rav et slow, it gives Hashem incredible nachas. Shkoyach.